The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Digging into our series on the book of Exodus tonight, and Pastor Kiefer began our series last week with an introduction and an overview of the book. And if you weren't here, Pastor Kiefer encouraged us to think of Exodus in in two portions. The, The first part in which God rescues Israel from slavery, and the second portion in which God rescues Israel for himself. Or another way uh, to, to think about it, as Pastor Kiefer said, was that because God graciously saves Israel in the first part, he calls Israel to respond by living in obedience and worship in the second. And so that's sort of the big picture of, of Exodus that uh, he laid for us. And with this framework under our belts, I have been tasked tonight with covering Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Now, this is a a large chunk of Scripture, and we're certainly not going to be able to look at it in every possible detail, but I hope to walk through this text and get a sense of who God is and what he's up to on behalf of his people. Since it is a a longer portion uh, of Scripture, what I'd like to do is read chapter 1 together, and then I'll summarize most of the familiar events of chapter 2 before closing with the last several verses. So if you would... Take God's word and let's read together from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? 
And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, we move to chapter 2. I'm going to just summarize the familiar uh, events of chapter 2. You remember that there's a certain Levite man and woman who are married, and they give birth to a son. But instead of killing this son, they hide him until they can't do so any longer and put him in a basket on the river where Pharaoh's own daughter discovers him, takes him as her own, and uh, asks uh, through, through Moses' sister that Moses' own mother nurse him uh, until he is, is weaned, and then Moses grows up in Pharaoh's own house uh, from there. Chapter 2 then fast-forwards quite a few years and gives us an incident in which Moses goes out to view the Israelites who are working as slaves and sees an Egyptian uh, uh, beating uh, an Israelite man, and Moses kills the Egyptian. And when uh, the matter becomes known to Pharaoh, uh, he realizes that his life is in danger and he flees to Midian. In Midian, he saves the daughters of a certain man there in Midian and becomes married to one of them. And chapter 2 then leaves Moses living in Midian with a wife and children. And I want to read just the last few verses of Exodus chapter 2, just verses 23 through 25. The story of Moses leaves off and it gives this summary comment. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Let's pray. God, this is your word that you have given to us. I pray that you would use it in our hearts and our lives tonight. And we thank you that your word does not go forth void. But you will accomplish your purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have here in Exodus chapters 1 and 2 a prologue to God's story of salvation. Now, what is a prologue? It's not a word we throw around every day. But my guess is that many of you, if you were to sort of think back to your high school English class, maybe those are good memories, maybe those are painful memories, but many of you probably had an opportunity to read an ancient Greek tragedy at some point in your high school career, maybe something like Oedipus Rex or Antigone or another famous play like this. And if you did, you would, might remember that the first scene was always entitled the prologue. And in the prologue, it was a short introductory section of the play, which was either a speech or a conversation between two people. And that prologue would introduce the main characters and set the scene so that when the play actually started, you knew what was happening. Now, if, you, if you're going to just jump into a play, you have to have some context. And the prologue gave you that context. Or maybe if, uh, if Greek tragedy is, is bringing back painful memories, maybe you can think of a Star Wars movie. If you think of a Star Wars movie, you know that the movie begins with yellow text 
fading into the into the galaxy. And that yellow text summarizes what's happening, which main characters are going to be here, and and so that when the action of the movie starts, you know, oh, okay, this is the situation, and these are the characters to be watching for. Well. That's what we have here in Exodus 1 and 2, a prologue to God's story of salvation. In Exodus chapter 3, the action's going to begin in detail when God shows up to Moses in the Midianite desert and calls him to lead Israel out of slavery. But who is Moses? What's he doing in Midian? And slaves? How did God's people become slaves? And how bad is their situation? Does God realize what's happening? All of these are questions that if we were to just jump into chapter 3, we would have. And and Exodus chapters 1 and 2 is going to answer those questions and give us context for God's story of salvation. Now, with any story, there are certain details that you just can't miss if we're going to understand what's happening with the story and really grasp the heart of it. And so as we walk through Exodus chapters 1 and 2 tonight, what I want to do is see five details Five details that we can't miss if we're going to understand what God is doing on behalf of his people. Well, let's begin. Let's begin with the very beginning of Exodus chapter 1 with the first few verses. As the book begins, don't miss God's faithfulness to his people and to his promises that drive the entire story. Exodus as a book, as a story, is based on, is driven by God's faithfulness to his people and his promises. Now, in case we have forgotten, the first couple of verses give us a little summary, a reminder of what had happened at the end of Genesis. As Dr. Rogers said this morning, this is a perfect tie-in to what he's been preaching and what we're talking about tonight. But the first verses remind us that Jacob came down to Egypt with 11 of his sons and their families to join Joseph, who was already here. Well, Jacob... Jacob comes down to Egypt. Why would the book start with this? Maybe we need to think back and say, well, what do we remember about Jacob? What do we know about this man? Well, this is the Jacob. This is the man that God appeared to at Bethel. This is the man that God made promises to. And here are the promises God made. He said to Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. And so here is Jacob coming down to Egypt and we know in the back of of the background of the story that this is the man God has promised not to leave not to forsake, to go wherever he goes. Now this, this promise of God's presence with Jacob, this promise that he would give him a family, an offspring that would expand as much as the dust of the earth, seemed to be threatened when a famine struck Canaan. And this is what Dr. Rogers has been preaching about. But God was faithful because he sent Joseph ahead to Egypt to prepare a way for his people. And in the midst of famine in Canaan, where there was no food. And Jacob freely says at the end of Genesis that if it were not for the food in Egypt, they would die. God calls his people to go to Egypt and they're given the land of Goshen, a fertile land in the Nile Delta in which they can live and flourish and grow as God's people. And so we aren't surprised at all to read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, 
that after Joseph and his brothers died, the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Remember the promise God made to Jacob, your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth? This is no random population explosion. Sociologists might say, well, what happened to the nation of Israel? But we know what's happening to the nation of Israel. God is with them, and God is fulfilling his promises. This is exactly what God promised to Jacob, and it's exactly what he promised to Abraham before him. And so right at the beginning, Exodus establishes that God is the kind of God who keeps his promises. God is the kind of God who is causing Israel to flourish and grow just as he said they would. And since God has made other promises as well, if Exodus starts by establishing that God is faithful, the wise reader should be waiting now with anticipation to see, well, how is God going to fulfill these other promises as well? So the first important detail that we have that we can't miss is that we're watching the work of a faithful God who has promised blessing, growing offspring, a land, and his presence with his people. And we're going to watch how that plays out over the course of this story. It's the first detail. Second, second detail, don't miss the spiritual warfare that bleeds from each move and counter move in these first two chapters. God has announced a plan for his people. And the plan God has announced is that Israel will become a mighty nation, as many as the sands on the seashore. But Pharaoh has a different plan. Pharaoh announces another plan, and his plan is for the security of his rule and the glory of Egypt. And these two plans are on a collision course. Israel is no longer 70 hungry shepherds off in the land of Goshen. They are now a sizable force that could swing the outcome of a battle if Egypt should be attacked. And so Pharaoh is going to make three different attempts to cut off the growth of God's people. And this battle between God and his plan coming about and Pharaoh as an instrument of Satan to undercut that plan is going to highlight the story of Exodus. Look in our, in our text tonight just at the three different attempts that Pharaoh makes to cut Israel off at the knees. First, he enslaves the people, setting taskmasters over them to oppress them with heavy work. Now, I think you can probably understand what the assumption is. If you lay heavy burdens in slavery on the people of Israel, what people is going to be able to flourish and have healthy offspring and grow into a mighty nation if they have to work all day long with heavy burdens? But, shamed, humiliated, and worked to exhaustion as they are. If you look at verse 12, we hear a stunning result. In the face of slavery, the more Israel was oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Round one goes to God. Pharaoh's attempt fails. So Pharaoh ups the ante, and he tries tactic number two. And he tells the midwives that any time a baby girl is born to the Hebrews, she should be allowed to live. But any time a baby boy is born, that they should kill him. After all, a nation of only girls with no men can't fight militarily very well. So that addresses Pharaoh's first concern. But it's also important for us to realize that a a, a nation of only girls is only one generation from being subsumed into the nations around them for they will have to marry the men of Egypt or other nations. So this will wipe them out as a nation. But you might think, well, 
Pharaoh, the most mighty king of the ancient world, has given a command. What chance does Israel stand now? And yet in the face of Pharaoh's command, Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives, fear God more than the threats of the earthly king. They ignore Pharaoh and the save the baby boys alive. And I love verse 20 because verse 20 declares God's victory with emphasis. The people multiplied and grew very strong. That extra word emphasizes that Pharaoh's plan has completely failed and Israel's continuing to grow in its strength. Well, you get the feeling then that uh, Pharaoh is not up to any more games, so he moves on to tactic number three. And he makes a public decree to all of his people. If you see a baby Hebrew boy, throw him into the Nile River. We are going to wipe this nation out. And yet, and yet in the face of Pharaoh's futile wrath, we get the story of this baby Moses, this baby of the Levite man and woman that drips with irony at every step. You can't miss this in the text. Because in the face of Pharaoh's decree that every baby boy should be thrown into the river, Moses is thrown into the river in a basket. And he is saved when Pharaoh's own daughter rescues the boy instead of killing him so that Moses is raised in Pharaoh's own house and Pharaoh's own money is used to pay Moses' own mother to raise him. That's probably a deal most of our moms would love to get, and get paid to raise your own children. But you have to see these points, point after point. Pharaoh's decree is undercut at every step in an emphatic way. And the point of these stories is that behind the details is a struggle going on between the, over the fate of God's chosen people. Pharaoh is Satan's chosen instrument to fight against their success and against their flourishing. But despite all of his apparent earthly power and all of the pain that he might be able to cause in the process, he is no match for God who is at work to bring about the flourishing of his people. He's no match in the face of God's blessing, God's promises, and God's plan for his people. And the rest of the story of Exodus is going to demonstrate definitively this battle and God's utter victory on behalf of his people for their good and for his glory. That's the second detail. Third, third detail. Don't miss the reality of what God's people went through in Egypt. And I think we stand here as a largely middle and upper class American group living in the most affluent century in history. And I wouldn't for a moment claim that our life is without suffering or difficulty, but I think it's hard for us to grasp the dehumanizing agony of forced slavery, of forced labor, of being controlled by another person of watching the labor of your hands consumed by others who consider you inferior. Maybe we can understand the hard, sweaty work of of making things, making bricks. But I don't think that we can understand the shame of being owned and beaten at another's whim. Just listen to the words that Exodus uses. Exodus describes Israel's slavery with phrases like this, afflicted with heavy burdens, oppressed, ruthlessly made to work, made their lives bitter with hard service so that Israel groaned and cried out. The text is using words and phrases to call our hearts to feel 
the depth of the suffering and the pain and the humiliation of what God's people are going through. Many of you are familiar with the scourge of sexual trafficking that's all too alive and well today, even right around us. But it's probably not as highlighted that there is labor trafficking as well that goes on in the United States and around the world. And I read, as I was thinking about this story, story after story of people who were trafficked into slavery. I read the story of Shema, 11-year-old Egyptian girl whose parents signed a 10-year contract of her work in order to receive some money. But the employer took her from Egypt, moved to a large house in California, made her sleep in a garage and work constantly. She was told never to talk or socialize with members of the family for they, she was not good enough to talk with them. She didn't know any English and she was refused any classes, so she was utterly isolated and alone. She was lied to and told that the police would beat her if she ran away or told them who she was. And so even when a detective did show up at the house, she was even more afraid and lied. You hear the fear, the shame, no dignity, despair, hopelessness, ruthless work, physical and emotional beatings. This is the reality of slavery. It's the ugly reality of a fallen world. And the reason I highlight this is because only when we understand the depths of Israel's despair will we read this story rightly. Only when we understand what Israel's situation is will we understand the heights of God's salvation, of the glory of a God who would step into this pain, who would see and hear this despair, who would bring deliverance, not just relieving Israel of hard work. Sometimes I think that's what we hear, like, oh, they didn't have to work as much anymore or something like that. No, This is restoring their dignity, their humanity, their hope, their ability to laugh and to sing. And only when we understand the real nature of Israel's slavery and God's deliverance in Exodus will we properly understand what Scripture means when it says that our bondage to sin is that same kind of hopelessness, that same kind of entrapping slavery, and that God's salvation in Christ is that kind of freeing, redeeming, life-restoring deliverance. And so don't miss the real pain and suffering of God's people as they wait for God's deliverance. Fourth, fourth, don't miss the surprising work of God in just natural, everyday ways that sustain his people amidst of oppression. We didn't read uh, all of chapter 2, But if if you were to take the entirety of chapter 1 and 2 up until the very last three verses, this is a long narrative, I think you would find that with the exception of a brief note in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, God is not mentioned in this story. It tells what the Israelites went through, how they were enslaved, what they were going through. But other than that brief mention in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, God is not mentioned until we come to the last couple of verses of chapter 2. Why is that? Why is the whole story of Israel's enslavement told without God being mentioned? Well, I think that perhaps the author was using the text to try to tell us what Israel was experiencing. What did it seem like to Israel to go through this? Well, it seemed like God was absent. If you're an Israelite on a Thursday afternoon making bricks, it sure feels like God isn't there. And the author tells the, tech, the story in that way. But, but the details of the story show that God is present 
again and again and again. Because again and again and again, the story is surprising and takes turns that we wouldn't expect unless God was present. Slavery doesn't slow Israel's growth. How is it that oppressed people can explode in population? The Hebrew boys are not killed despite a royal decree. A particular Levite boy does not die, but is brought up with every advantage ready to be used by God. All of these things seem like natural and everyday things. Well, we don't see God, but look at what's happening. And I think the text is showing us that even though God's name is not used, God is here in every line. God is here in every act. God is bringing about his purposes in every scene of this story. In other words, the nature of our circumstances are not enough to tell us whether God is present or absent. In fact, often it's only after the fact that we can look back and see how the story unfolded, that we see how present God actually is. Here, God's presence and work on Israel's behalf is so obvious in hindsight as his promises are filled against and over top of every obstacle and every attempt of the most powerful king in the world to stop them. The text doesn't even need to explicitly mention God when it shows how God's promises are brought out. Every detail is infused with his sovereign care. And so don't miss the way God's presence is at work in every detail. As I just pause, I think I would say that this is typically how God works. Not in taking us out of difficulty, but in saving us through difficulty. This was Joseph's experience when he first came to Egypt. God's salvation came through the path of slavery, imprisonment, abandonment until the right moment for God's plan came. This is the path Israel now follows through slavery until the right moment for God to rescue them and bring them out with all the wealth of Egypt and a new understanding and vision of the power of God and salvation. And 1,500 years later, this is the path that Christ will take, the path through death on the cross to bring salvation to his people. In our lives now, God's purposes for us and for his kingdom are often brought out through pain, not from taking us out of it. I can only imagine that most Israelites were buried under the groaning of each day, and perhaps some of us feel the same way. I don't know what God has called us to. But in the prologue of God's story of salvation that we read tonight, this story demonstrates so clearly the presence and faithfulness of God with them. And if we are in Christ, the same is our hope as well. Well, finally, the fifth detail. Don't miss... Don't miss the beautiful words that close this prologue in Exodus chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. You know know how a situation can look one way because you only see one piece of it, and then suddenly you get the whole picture, and now that that scene looks completely different? A couple weeks ago, I was out in the gathering space of our church, and I looked to that end of the building just in time to see a three-year-old and a two-year-old run out the doors toward the parking lot. Now, I made a dash over to that direction only to see that there was a teen behind the door that I couldn't see right there with the kids. Now, the scene looked one way from afar, but when I got the whole picture, it suddenly took on a whole different meaning. Movies do this too, where they'll show a particular scene and then the camera will pan out and suddenly we realize that what looked like a great scene is actually quite ominous and troublesome or what looked like a dangerous scene is actually just fine because of the character who's here we didn't know was there before. Well, as we come here 
chapters 1 and 2 in Exodus, we see Israel preserved against Pharaoh's threats. And maybe the casual observer is thinking, wow, that was lucky. Amazing. Amazing how that worked out. Israel's groaning and crying for help, and just when we wonder maybe if their luck has run out or if there's anyone who can help this enslaved people, the lens of the text pans up and gives us the most beautiful phrases that we could hear in verses 24 and 25. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. These phrases answer everything. They give us the full context of the text. Just when we wonder what's happening, we wonder what might happen to this people. But God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And these aren't just bare facts. These aren't facts as if, well, the sounds of Israel's groanings came up to God's ears. He heard them. Or, or like intellectually, God knew what they were going through. No, because God's hearing, seeing, and knowing is always accompanied by God acting. Look through scripture. Genesis chapter 6. God looks down and sees the wickedness of men. He sees it, the text says. And what happens? He acts and sends a flood and saves a man, Noah, to keep his promises alive. Or maybe you think later in the story of Genesis when God hears Ishmael, the little boy, crying out after Abraham has sent him away. And it says that God heard the boy's crying And God came to Hagar and said, Do not fear. God has heard your boy's cry. It's God hearing as a fact. That's not what's comforting. It's the fact that when God hears, God acts. And so when we hear, God heard his people. God saw his people. God knew. That means that God will act. And of course, perhaps the most significant word of all, God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ultimately, Israel's hope comes from who they are. It comes from what God has already promised them in the past. And God has not forgotten. None of God's promises fall. When God remembers, he acts in perfect faithfulness. So God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. If you were to jump back into your English class for a second, maybe you remember the literary device foreshadowing foreshadowing was that tool where the 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 story would say something and it wouldn't give you all the details but it would tell you basically what kind of thing was coming you know the sort of line where you know i was reading a book a couple years ago and the first couple lines said you know this character walked out of his house having no idea that he would never return well there's foreshadowing you don't know what's going to happen but you know something bad's coming right? This is foreshadowing. It gives you a hint, even though you don't know the details. Well, at the end of chapter two, when we hear these beautiful phrases, we don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know exactly what God's going to do. But from these lines, from chapters two, verses 24 and 25 on, we know that God is going to rescue his people. If God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew, that's what's coming. And we just get to wait and see how he's going to carry it out. Well, as this chapter ends, we know the situation now. We know the characters. We know the conflict between God's promises and his plan for his people and Pharaoh's plans. And we know that God is going to act for the sake of his covenant promises to his people. The only question now is how it's going to go down. 
And that's what we'll get through the remainder of Exodus. But before we close, let me just pause and consider two applications with you. First, let this story speak to you in whatever specific circumstances you find yourself in right now. Because I want you to think about the, the whole story of what happens to Israel here. If you were an Israelite, maybe an older Israelite, who'd experienced much of what this text summarizes, think about what all your life has seen. Your life has seen God's people flourishing in the goodness of Goshen, increasing in numbers and growing strong. But then you've experienced being enslaved. You've experienced groaning under dehumanizing impression. You've experienced crying out to God and wondering if he would hear. But then you're now ready to experience that God hears, God remembers, God acts. And if you will live a few more years, then perhaps your life will see dead Egyptians on the shore and you will be singing God's praises as you see his deliverance and his salvation. God's goodness didn't change with each one of those events. You saw, you saw flourishing, you saw pain, you saw salvation throughout your life. God's goodness didn't change, though the circumstances went through many different places. At any point, God was still faithful. God was still there with his people. He was still faithful to his promises. And we too might be any, at any point in this path. Perhaps you're struggling with the guilt of sin. Perhaps you're straining under the burden of shame. Maybe you're discouraged and despairing in the face of pain and trials. Maybe you're experiencing the wrath of Satan's instruments as he fights against God's plans in your life. Maybe, maybe you're crying out to God and waiting for an answer. Maybe you're in pain, but you're confident that God sees you and knows and is with you. Or maybe you're again in blessing and rejoicing in God's salvation and his goodness. At any step, I don't know where you are, but this text shows us that God is with you and God is faithful to his promises at any point in the story that his people are. And so this story is a comfort to us. It's a comfort to us, whatever our specific circumstances. But secondly, secondly and finally, if we're talking about a God who remembers his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises of descendants beyond the stars of the sky, promises that in their offspring every nation would be blessed in them, then we're going to quickly realize that although Exodus starts to fulfill these promises, Exodus doesn't fully fulfill these promises. We see that God is faithful. We see that God acts. We see that God brings about what he says he will do. But Exodus is only the beginning. It's only a partial answer to all of God's promises. Ultimately, this story that starts in Exodus, that follows us through the salvation of God's people from Egypt is going to follow them through a journey past Mount Sinai into the borders of the promised land, back into the wilderness, but then back into the promised land, through judges that save his people, through King David, through exile and return, with Israel continuing to get a taste of the joy of God's promises, but always left with longing for the fullness that is still to come. And that longing is going to continue right up until a man, until a boy is born in Bethlehem, until Jesus Christ undergoes pain and rejection and death on the cross, but then God raises him to life and offers him 
as the key to blessing to every tribe and every nation on the earth, to everyone, this man who offers his life in his presence, to all who will be heir now through faith in him to all the promises of Abraham. Suddenly God's promises then are extended to you and me. And when we hear these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we see God bringing them about, now through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we become men and women who can claim those promises. Suddenly this God who sees, who hears, who knows, who remembers can become our God. Salvation out of bondage become our hope if we would come to God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Exodus. If we have come to such a great Savior Jesus, then this story is our story. The foreshadowing of these last few verses that tell us that God will act is for us. This story is grounding our hope in the steadfast love and the steadfast faithfulness of a God who remembers and who acts, a God who is with us to accomplish his purposes for our redemption and for his glory. And so will you hear the invitation to run to Christ if you've never run to him before? And will you join me and bursting forth with thanks and praise and joy for the Christ who is our hope if you have already found yourself safe in his salvation. Brothers and sisters, wherever you are, this story offers you hope. In Christ, we are invited to partake in God's salvation. In Christ, we know where this story is headed. Blessing for all who are heirs of his promises. And God is always faithful to keep his promises. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who hears, who remembers, who sees, who knows. And when you see and know and hear and remember, you act. You are faithful to all of your promises. And this story of Exodus will bring this to the fore. I thank you that this story of Exodus points us ahead to Jesus Christ in whom we now can inherit these promises. We pray that we would sing with all the joy of saved people people who have been rescued from sin and bondage. And we give glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.